Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. Folks, we're on episode 15 and we're now in the year 1915. On the last episode, we ended the year with winter setting in, bringing in rain, cold winds, mud, and of course, snow. The fighting didn't exactly come to a halt, but it did slow down in some areas so the soldiers could fortify their trench positions. I talked about the status on the Eastern Front, the First Battle of Ypres, and the famous Christmas Truce. 1914 ended with Commander saying, now what are we going to do? And on this episode, I'll cover the game plan starting in the winter of 1915. But before we get into this episode, let me go over a few admin notes. That sounds professional, right? Admin notes? Well... So I was running my podcast on a Focusrite Scarlet audio interface, and it just one day decided it didn't want to work anymore. So I ended up getting another audio interface by Mackie, and just like Murphy's Law, what can go wrong will go wrong. When I got the audio interface, I hooked it up, plugged it in. It didn't want to work. Sent it back. And on the last episode, I was freaking out. I said, well, how am I going to record this podcast? And then I remembered I had an old mixer, a, a Behringer mixer. So I got that out, dusted it off, hooked it up, and that's what I'm using right now. And you know what? So far, it's working. Um, I do have plans to upgrade my, uh, my audio system, but I just want to hold off right now. I want to let the dust settle o- over, let everything calm down of what's going on. And, uh, and then I'll do some upgrades. But right now, I'm pretty happy with the way things are working. Okay, now let me introduce what I'm drinking for this episode. I'm drinking by Stone Brewing Tangerine Express Hazy IPA. And what does this have to do with the Great War? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. It just looked good when I seen it at the store. So let's go ahead and uh, let's try this bad boy out. Um... Yeah, that's not bad. It's a tangerine and pineapple IPA. A hazy. It's okay. Actually, it's just all right. Yeah, enough of that. Let's get into some great war history, folks. The year 1914 ended with commanders on all sides coming to a conclusion that this wasn't going to be a quick and easy war. The opponents met head-on, they clashed and duked it out, and they were getting nowhere. Violence and death hit an all-time high. The Germans suffered more than 800,000 casualties, with an estimated more than 100,000 dead. The French and Austro-Hungary casualties were around the 1 million mark, with God knows how many of that number were dead. The Russians' total was about twice that. And for the British, who first crossed the English Channel, landing in France, who came to help Belgium and France, more than half of them were either dead or wounded. And 1915 started out following suit, showing it was going to be just as violent right out the gate, kicking the new year off with a naval attack. At 2.20 a.m. on the 1st of January 1915, HMS Formidable A pre-dreadnought battleship was sunk after being struck by a torpedo fired by a German U-boat. For those who don't know, HMS stands for His or Her Majesty's Ship. After being hit, the ship immediately began to take on water, but it was the second torpedo that sealed Formidable's fate. 
the crew abandoned ship and 546 seamen perished to the bottom of the channel. The captain of Formidable was Arthur Noel Loxley. He was said to have stayed on the bridge till the end with his dog Bruce. Both perished along with the others, but Bruce's body washed ashore on a beach near Abbotsbury. Today, Bruce is honored with a headstone in Abbotsbury Gardens in Dorset, and the stone reads, quote, Bruce, Airedale Terrier, who stood till the end with Captain Loxley, Royal Navy, on the bridge of HMS Formidable, when sunk by a torpedo 30 miles from Portland, January 1st, 1915. Bruce's body was washed up below Abbotsbury Castle, end quote. In France and Belgium, the British, Germans, and French continued with attacks, trying to gain ground by pushing their foes' trench lines back, ranging from Flanders to Alsace. Just about every night, the soldiers on the front lines had to attack, patrol, or dig. They had to lie in the mud for hours at a time. Daily rains and cold weather nearing to the point of freezing over. Badly fed, hardly no shelter aside from the small hole in the side of the trench. And with the constant artillery fire, rifle fire, and machine guns, the soldiers were going mad. And there was dead being buried in the earth almost every night. Louis Barthas noticed this one evening when he was awakened by the sounds of picks and shovels. He carefully peeked over the parapet of the trench, spotting night workers making this noise. He asked the workers what they were doing. One worker stopped in anger. Can't you see that we're burying the dead from the last assault? The dead were everywhere, and often they would just bury them right in the same front line trenches they were living and fighting out of. And as if the bullets, artillery shells, even the dead didn't make the situation horrible already, the weather made it even worse. In some areas like the Eastern Front and parts of Belgium, they had snow, but some still had rain, a cold, slushy, muddy rain. I often said in the military, I would have taken snow over the rain any day. At least the snow, you can somewhat stay dry. Barthas describes the situation saying, quote, another enemy arrived, the rain, against which we had no defense at all. This wasn't a fine, soft rain, a good winter rain, we called it at home. This was a driving rain, pounding us with big, fat raindrops. The kind you thought the god was unleashing a second deluge to extinguish the madness of his creatures. And the rain kept falling all night long. The walls of the trench crumbled, and in spite the distinct slope, in certain spots the water accumulated, dammed up by the landslides. The stream at the trench's bottom grew larger as the waters expanded creeping toward us in a vast lake. The sentries no longer kept watch, seeking refuge from the flood and the collapsing walls. Some abandoned the trench altogether. The next night, the sky cleared up, as if a curtain had been lifted, and we saw the most sublime spectacle man could ever admire. A sky luminously sprinkled with stars and a splendid, radiant, silvery moon. But at the same time, the temperature plummeted as if these faraway worlds were sending us an icy wind. It was clear that if war brought on bitter physical suffering like cold, hunger, thirst, sleeplessness, it also brought on an equally high degree of satisfaction when those sufferings were relieved. End quote. If you're new to the history of the Great War and you've been listening to this podcast, you're probably telling yourself it can't get much worse than this. 
but it does. Leaders on all sides will continue to throw their soldiers into no man's land like sacrificial lamb, wave after wave, as if they were just some beast of burden. The First Battle of Champagne was the second Allied offensive following the First Battle of Ypres. This battle was fought between the 4th French Army and the German 3rd. The battle started on the 20th of December 1914, but the death count severely escalated just a couple weeks into 1915. Joffre's plan was to win the war quickly with these new set of attacks that stretched from the Artois region down to the Champagne region of France. Joffre was relentless sacrificing his soldiers, sending wave after wave of attacks. The French only advanced 500 yards after receiving heavy German resistance. By the end of January, the French suffered an estimated 90,000 casualties. But still, Joffre felt there was a possible breakthrough in the German lines and he continued his assaults during February and March, again, got nowhere. The Germans didn't break, just like 1914. All this battle did was stack dead bodies in the earth and fill hospital beds. And it was around this time the British War Council were becoming more skeptical of winning the war on the Western Front. Bazincourt is a very small commune in France, just north of Reims, that borders the Champagne region. Its population today is just over 2,000. If you're ever on a road trip in France, venturing out to visit the World War monuments, battlefields, graves, etc., you'll encounter tons of small towns like Bazincourt. I picked up my rental car in Rheims and headed out towards Verdun. I passed many of these towns, some so small, if you blink, you might miss it. Today, they're peaceful farming communities harvesting a lot of goods for France, such as sugar beets. But over 100 years ago, this wasn't the case. They were towns littered with soldiers coming in and out of the trenches, many wounded. Many of the buildings or homes were destroyed. Bazincourt is where German soldier Ernst Junger arrived at the front for the first time. And like most of the soldiers, the first day arriving to the front usually was a day that left an impression. Younger and the other soldiers in his unit were having breakfast in a schoolhouse where they had been put up the night before. Suddenly, there was a series of dull concussions. The men then ran out towards the entrance. Confused, there was a whooshing sound over their head followed by a violent explosion. Younger seemed to be amazed at how the men cowered under threat. He thought of it as ridiculous. But then, groups of dark figures emerged on the street carrying canvas stretchers. He had a queasy feeling of unreality. He stared at a blood-splattered form with a strangely contorted leg hanging loosely. The soldier was crying for help as if sudden death still had him by the throat. In Younger's words, he said, quote, The war had shown its claws and stripped off its mask of coziness. It was so strange, so impersonal. This event, so far beyond anything we had experienced, made such a powerful impression on us that it was difficult to understand what had happened. It was like a ghostly manifestation in broad daylight." End quote. The shell that had burst above the chateau hurling a cloud of stone and debris in every direction, that shell claimed 13 souls, one of them being a music master. The road was littered with pools of bloody gore and military equipment like canteens, helmet, and even swords. Younger finally arrived in the trenches, in the chalky champagne soil facing the village of Legodat. To the right of them was a woodline named Shell Wood, which zigzagged across a large sugar beet field, and in the distance they could see bright red trousers dotted everywhere. 
It was the dead French and their bright uniforms. Younger described it as an eerie place. A nearby stream with a destroyed mill for months was littered with dead French colonial soldiers, bloating, rotting, decaying in the stream. Would the fish even eat them? And think if you were drinking from the stream months after, knowing what was rotting away in this very bed of water before. But they had no choice. Often water wasn't brought to them, and they would have to get it where they could. I don't think I need to tell you that dysentery was an issue throughout this war. The first battle of Champagne ended on the 17th of March, 1915, but in no way, shape, or form did the fighting stop on the Western Front. On the Eastern Front, the conditions were turning into a nightmare. Conrad von Holzendorf launched an offensive on the 23rd of January with 41 divisions of combined Austro-Hungary and German soldiers aimed to push the Russians out of the Carpathian Mountains with the recovery of Galicia. But this campaign just about failed right from the start. And the problem wasn't Russian defenders. It was the hellish winter conditions in the Carpathian Range. Passes were iced over, snow was thick, and temperatures were beyond frigid. I don't know what the coldest weather you've experienced is. Mine was around negative 25 degrees with the wind chill. Once you get below zero, it's really all the same. It just hurts. You feel the chill down to your bones and natural survival instincts embedded in our DNA kick in. Find shelter or make shelter and get warm quick. But for these soldiers, there was no shelter and finding warmth was almost non-existent outside of the clothes they carried. One Austrian army lost 89,000 men in just two weeks. One morning, several encampments of soldiers had frozen to death overnight. Men were freezing to death at the pace of men getting shot to death. The offensive was doomed by mother nature. And how was Conrad handling the frigid weather during this offensive? Well, old hot mitts Holtzendorf was at his headquarters, far from the action in comfortable living quarters. Some generals even had their wives with them in private living areas, safe and sound. Five days after the start of Conrad's offensive, Ludendorff kicked off his own attack and introduced something new in warfare. Gas. But this wasn't the gas you're thinking, not the gas that kills. This was xylyl bromide, also known as methylbenzyl bromide, or substance T. It's a form of tear gas that could incapacitate a person without killing them, and Ludendorff ordered 18,000 canisters of it. But what Ludendorff and other German officials weren't aware of was that xylyl bromide is ineffective in freezing temperatures. Thus, this had little to no impact on the Russians. In fact, since they barely noticed it, they didn't even bother to tell the French and British about it. In the end, the Germans met stiff resistance and Ludendorff called it off. However, this wasn't exactly a loss for him. He did accomplish the overall objective for this offensive, which was to keep the Russians engaged while preparations were being finalized for a more important effort on the Northeastern Front. And while Ludendorff's soldiers were retreating in an orderly fashion, the Huns' artillery ripped into the Russians, causing over 40,000 casualties in just three days. Conrad was struggling to take the objectives he had set out to take and saying that the German generals had lost all confidence in him was to say the least. The war in the East wasn't going to be won by Conrad and his Austrian troops. This would have to come from the leadership of Ludenhin and their soldiers. 
Ludendorff was ready to unleash a new campaign on the 5th of February. He positioned his 10th army north of Masurian Lakes. The objective was to surround and destroy all Russian forces within the vicinity. But just as he was getting ready to launch the attack, Mother Nature struck again. Snow fell, and it fell for two days straight at a depth of five feet. Temperatures dropped to 40 deg degrees below zero. But after the snowing stopped, Ludendorff still had his men attack and surprisingly, they made progress catching the Russians by surprise. These winter conditions made fighting hellish, but it got even worse when the snow began to thaw on the 14th of February, turning the snow to ice water and mud. Artillery guns began to sink. Soldiers became drenched with the sweat maneuvering through the thick mud, and during the night, their sweaty clothes turned rock hard as it froze over. And the one thing that'll bring on hypothermia the fastest, cold, wet clothes. Let me get a drink. All right. Both armies were struggling. The Russians were having trouble escaping the attacks and the Germans were struggling to encircle them. But on the 18th of February, a German corps fought its way through the snow and mud of Augusto Forest and sealed the Russians inside of it. The trapped Russians fought hard to defend themselves for three long days and some even managed to escape. And for those who didn't get away, they were forced to surrender. But the escapees mounted a counterattack and brought the German assault to an end. German propagandists, including Ludendorff, claimed this was a major victory and they claimed they took 100,000 prisoners and 300 guns. Russia reported they lost 56,000 men and around 185 guns. Who was right? Does it matter? Because this was still a big win for the Huns. 56,000 losses is still high. But Hindenburg didn't see this as a win. He stated they failed strategically. The German army in the east only advanced 70 miles. On the western front, 70 miles would be a significant gain. But on the eastern front... 70 miles was insignificant. It meant nothing. For Konrad von Holzendorf, the Austrian field marshal, well, he continued to push his men forward with attacks. And by the time the winter campaigns came to an end, the Austrian army added 800,000 casualties to the already 1 million they suffered in 1914. The Austrian army was crumbling fast. There was also a new war within Germany's own yard. A war of bickering and backstabbing. Hindenburg and Ludendorff were becoming quite nasty with Falkenhayn. The, the dynamic duo wanted more troops in the east. They believed this was where the war could be won if given enough troops to support the offensives. Falkenhayn, their superior, denied the request saying he needed the troops for assaults in the west. And Falk wasn't about to thin out his west to support Conrad, whom he wasn't a big fan of. Plus, he wasn't going to start taking orders from anyone besides the Kaiser, so he came up with another plan. Falkenhayn didn't get along with the dynamic duo, nor did he appreciate their demands. And to show his power, he broke up the team. He sent Lud to the newly formed army in the Eastern Front South to support Conrad. Needless to say, this upset both Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Now the Kaiser gets dragged into this after Hindenburg sends him a letter about his feelings towards Falkenhayn's recent orders. With the last part stating, I venture most respectfully to beg that my war comrade may graciously be restored to me as soon as the operation in the South is underway. 
That last statement doesn't sound bad. I mean, it sounds professional. After all, he just wanted Lude back by his side and more troops. That's not an unreasonable request considering how good they've worked together and they are fighting a war. But the soap opera drama isn't done. It gets worse. Falkenhayn is told he needs to go out east and see what the hell is going on. After first meeting with Conrad and Ludendorff, he finally agreed to meet with Hindenburg, Ludendorff, and Colonel Max Hoffman in Polson, the old Tannenberg team. This private meeting, we'll say, wasn't a happy one. Tensions were high as pent-up resentment spilled out. It was reported to be a heated conversation between the group and Falkenhayn left. After Falk departed, Ludendorff and Hoffman talked him into sending the Kaiser another telegram. A bit of a nasty one this time. The new letter demanded the dismissal of Falkenhayn, the dispatch of four new corps to the east, and the return of Ludendorff to his team. And if this wasn't met, he was prepared to resign. Now, I know after Tannenberg, Hindenburg was loved by his country. Why wouldn't they love him? Papers were writing good things about him back home. But you don't go send the Kaiser a letter like this. This was not a good move because all this did was piss off the Kaiser. And look, the Kaiser wasn't a man with patience and wasn't the type of guy who welcomed commands from his generals or from anybody at that manner. The Kaiser was an egotistical man with a short fuse. He would often blow up waving his fist around, his good fist that is. After a difficult birth, the Kaiser was left with a withered arm which he'd always try to conceal. And honestly, even as much of an egotistical, ill-tempered man that he was, I really don't blame him for getting upset over this. The Schlieffen plan failed. The war now spilled into 1915. He's already relieved Moltke of his command. And now he has two of his top generals acting out insubordinately with Moltke's replacement, Falk, the German general staff. Hand and Lude began undermining the Kaiser's decision-making since it was he who appointed Falk. The Kaiser is fuming. He felt disrespected and offended by the letter, and he was ready to court-martial both of them. Chancellor of the German Empire, Bethmann Holwig, is horrified at what's about to go down and steps in. He claims any public punishment for the hero of Tannenberg is unthinkable, and if anybody should be court-martialed, it should be Falkenhayn. Order in the court! Order in the court! The situation had gotten way out of control. Falk's enemies, which included the Crown Prince and the Kaiser's wife, Empress Augusta Victoria, and even Moltke, called for his removal. Moltke only joined in because he thought this would get him reinstated. Two sides were beginning to form, pro-Falk or hate Falk. But this finally settled down enough to make a decision, and it would be as such. Falk would remain the head of general staff, but he would give up the war ministry, and Lude would eventually be returned to Hind. Sounds fair, but the damage had been done within the highest ranks of the German Empire. I don't think either general was wrong as far as their ideas of winning the war. Hind and Lude wanted more soldiers and believed this war should be won in the east now that the Schlieffen plan had failed. And let's face it, Hind and Lude were a pretty good team. Falk believed it should be won in the West. After all, the first objective of this war was to take Paris. So why would he agree to thin out his forces in the West? 
Falkenhayn's authority had been defied and compromised by the generals of his army. The German Empire had a real dilemma on their hands, and 1915 was just getting started. And the Kaiser's leadership had been damaged by this. His authority and command was also being questioned. He was beginning to show increasing signs of psychological fragility. A person dealing with psychological fragility will show signs like the following. Feeling overwhelmed by simple problems, disagreements, or any situation that doesn't go like they hoped. Inability to deal with frustration. Difficulty taking control of their own life. Feeling like everything is too much for them. Constant problems in their social life. Basically, emotionally unstable. 1915 was starting out with some real issues for the German Empire. Now, let me get to the Ottoman Empire's position going into 1915. Where does Turkey stand? Will they side with the Allies or will they take up arms with the Central Powers? The Ottoman Empire's history runs deep and there's a lot. In fact, you could probably do a series just on the Ottoman Empire alone, possibly a whole separate podcast. But since this is about the Great War, I'll quickly give you my dumbed down slash rundown history of the Ottoman Empire. The empire was founded in the last part of the 13th century in Anatolia. The territory during its rule had a wide expansion from parts of Europe, Africa, and Asia, with Constantinople as its capital, which is now modern-day Istanbul. It was ruled under a caliphate until the empire dissolved in 1923. A caliphate is a rule or reign under a Muslim ruler. That's my quick rundown. Yeah, there's just too much history on the Ottoman Empire. It wouldn't do it any justice if I try to rush it in any of my episodes. There's just too much to cover and that doesn't pertain to the subject of the Great War. Just like I wouldn't go over the history of France. That too would get a dumbed down version because this is a World War I podcast. What? What? what No, sir. Sir, no. We don't do 80s Joel either. This is strictly a World War I podcast. In 1914, as the rest of Europe was on the brink of war, the Ottoman Empire was in no shape to compete or take on any of the European powerhouses, at least not by themselves. They were viewed as an empire that was slowly dying off. But to the young Turks, having a European powerhouse as an ally was in their best interest. The young Turks were a political movement that favored replacing the absolute monarchy rule with a constitutional government. They had seized control of Constantinople in 1908 after rebelling against the Sultan Abdul Hamid. But who would become Turkey's ally before the empire would die off? Its two closest, I wouldn't call them allies, I'll, I'll call them working relationships, were Great Britain and Germany. The German Empire had the most economic interests in the Middle East at that time, which included a Berlin to Baghdad railway. German General Otto von Sanders was named Inspector of the Turkish Army Chief of Staff in 1913. The Young Turks invited Britain to take on the role of upgrading its navy with an order of two new dreadnoughts to be built in England at the cost of 11 million pounds. That's a lot of money for 1914 and to be spent on two new dreadnoughts considering the Balkan War had financially ruined the empire. 
They didn't exactly have the money, but the people were talking highly about this new improved Navy, so the public raised the majority of the money. During the summer crisis of 1914, one of the ships was ready, and a crew of Turkish seamen were in England ready to take possession. However, since they still hadn't chosen a side, First Lord of Admiralty Winston Churchill said, Nah, 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 no ya don't, lads. Britain will be confiscating both ships, and he did on July 28th, the day Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Churchill's actions outraged Constantinople. The young Turks were in shock. They at least expected some form of negotiation or something, a release of the ships in return for alliance, something. So, in August of 1914, the Turks proposed a formal alliance with Germany, and as it so happened, Berlin had a draft written up for proposed alliance and wired it to Constantinople. The proposal required Turkey to enter the war with Germany once war was declared on the Allies. And during this time, the young Turks were secretly reaching out to Russia for proposed alliance while stalling their response to Berlin. However, it was also at this time Russia believed they were going to roll right over Germany with its massive army, so they just brushed off the proposal from the Turks. Talk about another soap opera. Poor Turks. They just wanted a friend during all of this. Somebody to call a pal. Maybe take for a ride on their two new sailboats they purchased but didn't receive. Someone to share a kebab or two with. But no, everyone kept telling them to piss off or pound sand. Except the Germans. But here's where it got dicey. Two powerful German warships named the Goben and the Bruslow, after dark docking in the Dardanelles, set out up the Bosporus Strait into the Black Sea, flying the Turkish flag on their ships. They then started shelling the Russian cities, Feodosia, Odessa, and Sebastopol. Russia was furious and the young Turks had to assure them they had no part in this attack. Russia gave them an ultimatum. Prove your loyalty, loyalty to us by expelling Germany or you'll become our enemy. On November 30th, after the ultimatum went unanswered, Russia declared war on Turkey. Britain and France did the same shortly after. The Turks ended up giving their alliance to Germany and the Central Powers. This is how Turkey entered the war. By early 1915, Sir John French had over 300,000 Commonwealth soldiers from India, New Zealand, Canada, and Australia under his command. The question was, what to do with all of them? While French had new ideas for recapturing the Belgian ports, others from the British War Council brought up an idea for a campaign in Syria which would draw in Turks from the north, freeing up Russian troops from the Eastern Front. Then another idea came along for the possibility of landing an Entente force at the port of Salonika in northwestern Greece, hoping this would draw in Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, and Italy into the war on the Allied side. Both Kitchener and Lloyd George liked this idea. Then there was the Dardanelles. This is the waterway in northwest Turkey that separates Europe Turkey from Asia Turkey. This is also where Gallipoli is located. The council believed with a great allied force entering this area, this would create problems for the central powers. Churchill inquired if his navy, navy was capable of fighting its way through the Dardanelles to Constantinople. The Royal Navy's admiral said it was possible, so Churchill immediately ordered them to write up the plans. The Dardanelles was on the horizon. 
And before I wrap up this episode, let me tell you what 1915 has in store for the weapons of war. The Industrial Revolution brought on new technological advances in metallurgy, chemistry, and factory production. The nations involved in the Great War weren't only the world's military powers, they were also the leaders in the Industrial Revolution's advancements. Weapons of war were being created round the clock to support the war effort, and as the men went off to war, women were manning the majority of these assembly lines. Weapon technology in human history was rather slow up until this point. Napoleon's army fired cannons that basically shot heavy iron balls. And by the time the Great War came around, there were massive artillery pieces with rifle barreling that could deliver rounds with deadly accuracy and destruction. In fact, artillery killed more soldiers between 1914 and 1918 than any other weapon. Chemical developments were also being made. Scientists were discovering ways to further change the way wars were fought. Smokeless gunpowder was created, along with a much more sinister element, poisonous gas. And of course, the machine gun. Who could forget about the machine gun? Invented in 1884 by an American named Hiram Maxim, the machine gun quickly became a weapon that was feared by all on all fronts. The machine gun would cut down many soldiers at once with one squeeze of the trigger. Groups moving in the open terrain would be obliterated by a hailstorm of bullets. It was a simple, sturdy mechanism that when having the barrel cooled by water could shoot down soldiers for hours. Even rifles were much better now than any other previous war. Rifles such as the German Mauser, the French Labelle, the almighty British Lee Enfield, the Austrian Mannlicher, all these rifles were capable of putting bullet after bullet into a bullseye from 100 yards. I talked about the skill of the British and its Lee Enfield and how with such accuracy and high rate of fire, most Germans believed they were being shot at by a machine gun. Mortars were also being reintroduced. These miniature artillery pieces could launch high explosives with a high trajectory. The Huns had a version called the Minenwerfer, or mine thrower. These were becoming effective by having rounds lobbed into enemy trenches causing misery. One crude development was barbed wire. This nasty piece of metal wire was first developed in America to keep cattle from escaping. Now every trench was becoming lined with them row after row. And when destroyed, they would have parties sent out in the night to repair or replace them. Now men were being treated like cattle. And last, the weapon making its debut in 1915 will be the flamethrower. First tested in 1914, this became a standard weapon. It used pressurized gas from one tank with ignited stream of oil from a second tank, creating a line of fire that could stretch over 30 yards. But this new weapon of fire wasn't always welcomed by the soldiers. 
Most didn't want to carry it, and most didn't want to be around it. See, if the tank was shot with a bullet or even shrapnel, it would more than likely explode and engulf those around it in flames. And often, if the guy holding the flamethrower caught on fire, he would wildly circle around spraying his flame until he passed out or burned to death. It's normal for a person to go mad while they're on fire, I would imagine. And on that note, I'm going to start wrapping up this episode right here. I hope you enjoyed it, and there's still much more to come for the Great War Battles in 1915. For this episode's Great War recommendation, I actually have two recommendations. First is the book, A World Undone by G.J. Meyer. This was the main source of material I studied for this episode. Meyer is a powerhouse author when it comes to the Great War, and I can't say enough good things about his writings. My second recommendation is a seven-part Australian miniseries called Gallipoli. Released in 2015, you can stream it through Amazon Prime for free if you're a member. An absolutely fantastic series with great cinematography and graphics. I really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. Folks, thank you again for supporting the show. You fans are the best. And let's face it, if it wasn't for you listeners, I would have no reason to have a podcast. And I really enjoy having this podcast, so I really appreciate all of you. Until the next episode, stay healthy and take care, everyone.